Welcome to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode, I give my thoughts on one of the works of Philip K. Dick. And today I'm going to be continuing a a four-part series on Philip Dick's 1957 novel, The Cosmic Puppets. The Cosmic Puppets was the fourth novel Dick published, and it's a fantasy novel with very few science fiction elements at all. Really, the closest we get to science fiction is a, a, a technological device that allows a character to restore reality, but even that is largely in the realm of fantasy. For it seems to be based on memory and mental powers and psychic powers, not true science. Its plot surrounds a man coming back to his hometown after living in the big city for most of his life. He comes to find the town change and eventually learns that cosmic forces are doing battle, using this town as a site of their eternal struggles. In fact, it's none other than Zoroastrian deities doing this battle, although that's not revealed till um, pretty late in the, in the in the what's of a very short novel, but it's it's still later in the novel. Now, as I said in the last episode, if Dick's first three published novels can be looked at as a set playing with different ideas of political systems, uh, you know, three different types of totalitarianism, relativism, uh, a randomocracy, and then finally moral reclamation, a moral conservative order. And all three deal with different visions of the frontier and the way the frontier can be a way out of political authoritarianisms. In a sense, I think these three novels can be looked at as Dick's answers to Orwell in showing how there is a way out of authoritarianism. It's not an eternal uh, reality. But the Cosmic Public begins a new phase in his career, which is, I think we can see four novels in particular that, that, that show a shift in Dick's attention. And he really starts to look at the question of shifting realities. So after the Cosmic Puppets, Dick will publish Eye in the Sky, Time Out of Joint, The Man in the High Castle, and all are going to deal with false fronts. Now, while the Cosmic Puppets is now always taken seriously by scholars, I do think we should look at this as an entryway into these other three novels, which are all more well-received and more well-studied. Now, in part one, I talked about how Ted Barton came back to his childhood home of Millgate after leaving there as a child. His wife is disgusted that he wastes time coming, but he insists on the side trip during, they're taking like a vacation south, and he insists on taking the side trip to his hometown. When he gets there, he finds that the entire town is different. It's changed at every level. Even the old buildings are different. Now, whether this is a a fake old, or as he entered an entirely different reality or timeline or, you know, place is not really explained to us at this point. He asks around and gets a few satisfactory answers from people. His wife leaves in a huff and leaves town and spends most of the rest of the novel in her hotel room talking to her divorce lawyer. He visits a newspaper and looks up the date that he and his family left Millgate. He finds reports of a scarlet fever epidemic, and also he finds a report that says a child with his name died on the day that he remembers leaving town. With this great mystery in front of him, he decides to stay in the town and to investigate it. So he takes it in a room at a boarding house. He runs into a boy, Peter Trilling. He's, he's, he's the son of a woman who runs the boarding house. And he discusses his powers to, with Ted, his powers to control clay and to control small creatures. Now we know that these powers are real since he has previously been able, he's been shown to us 
playing mock battles with bees and spiders and snakes and things like that with Mary Mead. Actually, it's Mary controls the bees and Peter controls like spiders and snakes and he can control golems. He makes out of clay. Peter then in the climax of the, I think it's the third chapter, tells Ted that he knows who he truly is. And that's what I talked about in the previous episode and I get a little bit more detail there. But moving on. So Peter Trilling comes out of this conversation with Ted a little bit upset and he just feels that he hasn't really gotten what he wanted out of this encounter. And we learn that it's, it seems that Peter doesn't, he still wants information or he's a little uncertain about his position or there's something he wants from Ted that he didn't get. He's also upset that he gave away too much information. Like he's not fully in control of how much he expresses and tells Ted. He goes to a barn and he looks at his creatures, the creatures he controls. And they're creatures like rats and spiders and, and s- snakes. So he controls kind of the dirty, the, the, you know, the the creatures he doesn't like. You know, you kind of like what's that old poem when you know, about kids, you know, boys, you know, all the nasty things and girls, flowers and spice and all the things nice. Right. Um, puppy dog tales with the boys, right? I, I forget the way that that little poem, that little nursery rhyme goes, but it's very much alive in this novel in that kind of the nasty, creepy crawler creatures, the things low to the ground are controlled by Peter. The things that fly, especially bees, connected, of course, to flowers is controlled by Mary, another child in the town. So he looks at all these creatures and he wonders why Ted Barton would be at Millgate at this time. And he's a little bit upset by that and a little bit baffled by that. And at this point he's attacked by two bees and then he wonders or he worries that they're going to send information back to Mary. So he starts to see Mary as an increasing threat, but we get a little bit more detail at this point about how both Peter and Mary are playing this game of, of, of kind of avatars and controlling these, they have these different forces that they can control. So Ted Barton goes and encounters Dr. Mead, who's Mary's father, at the boarding house in the dining room. And Mead confirms that that he lived in Millgate all his life, that he doesn't have any memory of the Millgate that Barton describes. Barton asks about the scarlet fever epidemic, and Mead recalls it quite vividly. He even recalls the death, uh, which supposedly was the death of Ted Barton. So Mead confirms that he did see this young boy identified in the newspaper as Ted Barton and saw him die. So in this other timeline or in this other reality, Ted really did die. Barton just kind of is cagey. He says he wants to learn about more about the, the past and find some facts. And he's, he knows something about this kid. And he wants to dig up some more history. So that's, he explains that's why he's here. And me just says what you would expect. He says, go to the county, county records office and talk to the town librarian. Go to the archives and you'll find out all you need to know. Read the newspapers. Barton then asks about Peter Trilling. And Mead confirms that Peter's simply an intelligent boy and a bit odd. As Barton pushes for answers more aggressively, Mead attempts to prescribe some drugs to him. And it's at this point in the story where things begin to get a really bizarre and weird. Two quote-unquote wanderers pass by and then just pass through the wall. This is something that doesn't surprise Mead at all. Mead thinks this is just normal everyday occurrences. And in fact, from the perspective of the people of Millgate, the presence of wanderers who are these ghost-like humanoids who simply pass through is a common part of life. So whatever change took place involved the creation of these humanoids who can kind of just float through the town doing their own business. And everyone who grew up in this version of Millgate 
thinks that's completely normal and 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 you know nothing odd at all because that's what they expect and that's what they've they've seen. In fact, me is surprised to hear that Ted doesn't ha- know anything about the the Wanderers. So then the point of view of the story shifts to Mary Mead again, and Mead is Mary's talking to her bees and finds out what they they learn from their spying on Peter. And she tells she actually has a conversation with one of the bees, and she tells the bee that Peter must be must be getting more powerful because he tried to actually reshape Mary's clay instead of his own, and so he's kind of taken a step into Mary's domain and the places and the the things that Mary traditionally has power over, and so it's kind of a, an aggressive threat. So Peter's kind of expanding his his power in this kind of weird proxy where they're having with these little creepy crawlers and bugs and spiders and things. They discuss also the newcomer, Ted Barton, who is likely to cause complications for Peter. So Mary seems to see Ted as Ted's arrival as a or talks about Ted's arrival as a good thing for her. Now what's going on here is really baffling to readers the first time through. It's it's really presented as kind of odd. Now it's explained by the end of the short novel. But Dick does leave this as a mystery as long as he can. And after this, so Ted's back at the boarding house and he calls his wife in Martinsville, which is where he left her, a nearby hotel. And she's just furious. She's upset at being abandoned. She's upset at being stuck in this small, boring part of the country in the small town. And she threatens divorce. And she actually says, like, I'm on the phone with my divorce attorney. So... The minute you come back, I'm getting a divorce. And it's this is really all we get from the wife. I think there's a mention of her at the end of the novel, but this is pretty much the whole arc. But she's in the backdrop of the story a little bit. And, you know, it's something to interpret. It's it's really one of the more unfortunate visions we have of family here. Um, there are some decent relations between like father and daughter. That's but you know what you see between Peter and his mother is pretty indifferent and there's no emotion there and certainly between Ted and his wife there's not much of a relationship and as I've talked a lot a lot in this podcast Dick is obsessed with with the broken family and marriages falling apart and all that so anyways, uh, after this call, Peter arrives with a handful of spiders in his hand and he enters the car with Barton and basically says, come with me. And he says, I'm going to take you to the ledge over to Wilkin the town. So he takes him to the edge of town, which has this huge ledge and it kind of overlooks the whole town. So we got this nice landscape and I don't know where this town exactly is located, but maybe it's like in the kind of the western part of Virginia, the rural, you know, the kind of the western part. It's kind of in the back roads area it, it's a town that not many people visit it's near a highway but even before this change it wasn't a town that many people went to and you can kind of imagine it it's kind of got an appalachian feel here and so he he kind of is able to look over the whole town and barton starts to notice as he looks over this whole town that there's a haze like a smoky haze and Peter explains that the haze is quote unquote him. And he doesn't identify who him is. He just says that he is the haze. And he gives Barton a special magnifying glass. And Barton looks through it and he's able to see a gigantic man whose legs become the mountains. And he's motionless, but it seems it's sort of outside of time. And its head culminates in the sun. 
And it's it's really bizarre, but this is what he sees. But he has to look through this special kind of viewing glass that Peter gives him. And here's what Dick writes. He was the scene. He was the full, the whole far side of the world, the edge of the valley, the mountains, the sky, everything. The whole distant rim of the universe swept up in a massive column, a cosmic tower of being which gained shape and and substance as he focused on the filter lens. It was a man, all right. His feet were planted on the edge of the on the floor of the valley. The valley became his feet at its farther edge. His legs were the mountains, or the mountains were his legs. Barton couldn't tell which. Two columns spread apart, wide and solid, firmly planted in balance. His body was a mass of blue-gray haze, or what he thought was haze. Where the mountains joined the sky, the immense torso of a man came into being. He had arms over the whole valley, poised above it, above the distant half. His hands were held out in an opaque curtain, which Barton had mistaken for a layer of dust and haze. The massive figure was bent slightly forward. As it was leaning intently over his part, his half of the valley, he was gazing down. His face was obscured. He didn't move. He was utterly motionless. Motionless, but he was alive. Not a stone image, a frozen statue. He was alive, but he was outside of time. There was no change, no motion to him. He was eternal. The avowed head was the most striking part of him. It seemed to glow, a clearly radiant or pulsing with light and brilliance. His head was the sun. So that's a description of what he sees. And, of course, this totally freaks him out. So Barton looks at this and says, I'm getting out of here. I'm leaving. And Peter just calmly says, you can try, but you're not going anywhere. So then Ted gets in, you know, gets in his car and he tries to leave Millgate. You know, he's a bit freaked out. He doesn't know what's happening to him, who's messing with his mind and what kind of weird stuff's going down here. But whatever curiosity he had is cut short by just the weirdness of what's happened here. So he tries to use the road, but instead of being stopped by some mystical force, as you might expect, a force field or a, you know, guards, monstrous guards or anything, all it is is an overturned lumber truck that blocks the road, but that's more than enough to keep any cars from leaving. He can't walk around the truck because there's apparently a bottomless chasm surrounding the road. So the, the edges of the road, you can't move around. So essentially this overturned truck is blocking the way. So he says, okay, screw the car. Get rid, you know, I'll just climb over it and then I'll be able to walk to the town eventually. And that will get me out of it. And he starts to make progress, but he's when he gets to the top of the truck, he's climbing over these logs. He actually thinks it's going to take a while to do it because it's the way it's you know, set up. It's it's a challenge for him. He makes some progress, but suddenly he's stopped by Peter Trilling. And he wakes up, not really knowing what's happened, and he's been on the logs for most of the day. And Peter is still there, and Peter tells him he can't leave until, quote-unquote, they want him to. And so, again, we get the sense that he's being controlled by these external forces. But we have these undefined pronouns, they and him. Obviously, one of the hymns is that kind of weird monster giant thing he saw through that lens. Um, Peter led him on the truck, but then stopped him there simply to prove a point. And in recompense, Barton refuses to give Peter a ride back to his town. So Barton, Barton's a bit of a jerk, actually, in this novel. I, there's, he's not the most likable character in a lot of ways. He's kind of indifferent to his wife. Yeah, his wife is just as bad, but... He doesn't really help matters much. He's a bit obnoxious and a bit arrogant. And he, he's not the most likable character. And here's a moment where he just kind of drives away with this kid on the road. And as weird as that kid is and the stuff he's been doing to him, it does show Barton as a bit vindictive and, you know, not, not the most likable person. But thankfully, we don't have to spend a lot of time with him. So the novel's so short. 
So Barton returns to Millgate and he visits the Magnolia Club, which is an old dive bar that's like falling apart. It's like the diviest dive bar you can imagine in the in, in a small town. So he has a few bourbons. He actually like lines up the bourbons, drinks them. And then a drunk named William Christopher introduces himself to Barton. Now, initially, Barton is kind of happy to have someone to talk to because he's a bit freaked out. And Barton begins to tell a story to the drunk as he drinks more and more and loses inhibitions. And then Christopher says that the places you're looking for, things you're trying to remember, don't exist anymore. And they've been gone for many years. And we learn at this point that Christopher is the first character in Millgate that Ted has met, with the exception, I guess, of Peter, that seems to remember a time before the change. And, you know, is conscious of this change. And he says, he talks about how the pleasant neighborhood of Pine Street, which both Christopher and Barton remember, has been replaced with Fairmount, another neighborhood. Uh, and Christopher and Barton are the only two people who recall that this previous location, Pine Street, ever existed. So we got a special character here who can maybe help Barton come to some answers. So William Christopher starts to go into this long discussion of of his own history and what he remembers and what's happened in this town. And he's driven to weeping in despair. Ted Barton, though, is enthusiastic because he's finally found a clue and maybe someone who knows what's going on and maybe someone who knows what the town used to look like. Christopher does fill in some details. The change he knows took place 18 years ago, really, which is the time Barton left and Barton's leaving is not by accident, as we'll learn. After the change, the wanderers appeared. That was one change. But most of the changes to the town, and here's an important point that Christopher makes, is most of the changes have been for the worst. They haven't really made the town better. Christopher, for instance, was proud of the home he built for himself before the change, but now he's in despair over the condition of the house he lives in now. The dive bar they're in is a good example of something that's just kind of crappy. In every way, the condition of the town deteriorated after the change. So a theme that Dick is interested in, he talks about it a little bit in The Man Who Japed. He's got it in a lot of stories, and especially it kind of reaches his ultimate in Ubik, is this entropy and this decay and how things fall apart and get worse over time. Kippleize, I guess, would might be the term. It's a, it's a term he uses in Do Androids Dream Electric Sheep? But it, it just means kind of junk and garbage spreading. Christopher shares a bottle of wine with Ted, and then at that point, Christopher shows Barton a small device he made, and he calls it a spell distorter, distorter, and it's not really clear what it is, but he's able to use the device on the wine bottle and reveal the wine bottle and the wine inside of it to be an old coffee grinder. And the old, whole wine bottle was fake, and there's even a moment where Barton like smells the thing he has in his hand, and it has like, or is, I think it's the wine glass he has in his hand that once had wine in it he smells it and it smells like coffee so the the you know it, everything is kind of covered up with this new reality but it can be restored is what christopher teaches barton the wine bottle is a complete fake so this means that the real town still exists underneath the facade of of this new millgate however this device only seems to work in very special conditions and that's why it's not clear whether this is just something Christopher made up to kind of be a conduit for his focus and his attention, or whether it really has any technological role. It seems it's more about memory that matters. So if you remember the past, you can restore it. And that's that's kind of the key theme at, in this part of the story is the importance of memory to restore what's been lost. 
because that's the only way the device works. You have to be able to remember exactly. And he also points out that it only lasts for a few minutes. And so he can, he can restore things temporarily, but never permanently. Christopher shows him a piece of string, which he insists was Aaron Northrup, one of the people of the town's tire iron. And this is a memory that both share. And Barton vows to attempt to bring the tire iron back. And so when he, if he's able to bring the tire iron back and bring it back permanently, then the foundation is laid for bringing back the entire town, perhaps. So this tire iron is going to be an important artifact throughout much of the rest of the story. So what uh, themes do we have here? Well, I think the big one, as with part one, the first part of the story, it kind of continues here. It's just urban planning, urban reconstruction, and then he adds to it urban restoration. And I think one of his important arguments here is that urban reconstruction, the remaking of our cities, tends to make things worse. And Dick lived at a time when American cities were being remade. Uh, a lot of capital was being invested in construction and building, but it was being built more in the outskirts of towns and suburbs and small towns and especially in suburbs. And Dick really didn't like this change in American and the American landscape. And so it's not surprising that he, he associates the transformation of urban space with a kind of decay and failure. And then the kind of this break from the past. We, 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 we lose our memories of the past and we, we lose the people that we once encountered with, right? And I think this is a material reality, actually. Like if a, a city has changed enough, neighborhoods are broken up. And with that, people who maybe were once good friends, they go their separate ways. They, they don't live in the same town anymore. You know, sometimes neighborhoods decay or turn into ghettos and people leave. And that breaks up relationships and families. And people do come in and out of our life. And we're left with these ghosts, these wanderers, right? We have these ghosts of our past. And, you know, I don't, I, I can't, I haven't really. Now, clearly, I, I think this is a book about urban planning at its core. Even though, in a sense, it, it's, it's, it's the whole town is remade kind of by gods, essentially. But I still think what the real thematic core of this is how we experience the changes in our life. And, and the question is, who makes these changes? And in a liquid world, changes don't come by magic, right? Even Dick kind of uses magic here to get to the point. But changes come because of powers greater than us, right? Urban planners, you know. And I urge everyone who's interested in this theme to go read... I think it's Robert Carroll's book called The Power Broker. And it's about Robert Moses. And Robert Moses was this unelected city bureaucrat in New York City who was responsible for like the parkways. And he, you know, there's been a lot of analysis of the impact of these parkways on different neighborhoods in New York City. But whole neighborhoods were transformed. The point is whole neighborhoods were transformed just based on where he put the roads and the exits and, and where he put investment and funding. And it was all... There was class politics, there was racial politics involved in all that. But this idea that these vast powers far beyond us are shaping our lives, and the one way they do that is by transforming our physical space around us, I think is very true to life. Well, there's a very interesting comic book series uh, called Transmetropolitan. Warren Ellis uh, uh, wrote it. And it's one of the greats, I think. And it's certainly good on this question of urban planning. It's set, it's a cyberpunk series. It's set in kind of a, a futuristic version of, of New York City, but 
it's it's very it looks very contemporary in its class inequalities and its its commentary on urban planning, its commentary on police powers and police violence and all these things. There's a lot of very contemporary issues in this science fiction um, comic book, and there's a a, a whole issue towards the end of the series where the main character who's a a journalist kind of based on hunter s hunter thomas thompson tom, tom yeah hunter thompson what, whatever his name is uh and he's he's just walking through town and he talks about urban planning essentially and it's pretty fascinating it says quote main road roman road they used to call it straight and true it runs right through the center of the city from edge to edge dead straight the first road laid down here Stride Alley, shortest access road in the city. Five bodies found here in the last nine weeks. Here it all is. Second and Hartley, first porno street in the city, filled with dealers supplying the city builders. It got rezoned by Civic Center last week, followed the change of presidential policy. There's schools within sniper distance, so the porno zone is being squeezed to half a block for now. The president is officially studying the Constitution in order to protect the people from outmoded language and ideas therein. This used to be the middle-class residential street. A sequence of terrorist events cleared the local housing, but the school in the middle stayed open. The housing was taken over by the local criminal element. Within five years, the school was largely attended by children of prostitutes and addicts. So the school system cut its funding down to a bare minimum, even as its class sizes grew over 50 per. Because they were children of whores and junkies, so why waste resources on them? The cheap, dangerous, and poison housing projects that spurred off the northern tip of Main Road are being torn down, as per the Smiler's electoral promises. He said that no one should have to be punished by living in these, and he would see them destroyed. Note carefully how he said nothing about finding the inhabitants anywhere else to live. My city changes by the second, but the history of the place is never erased. Cities wear scars deep. And that's just part of, of the episode, it, or not the episode, the, the chapter issue but i think he, he warren ellis in this issue really gets to the heart of the matter now i'm not sure dick would agree that the history remains with him i mean he's he sees this kind of the deeper scars of these changes there we have it here as ghosts um but and and this change in the city is more total but you know that's just something another perspective on this this question of of how does urban planning affect our lives and, and just how much power we give to these these unelected people to you know tell us where to shop to tell us where to work to tell us where to recreate on and on so it's more than just the experience we have coming back to our hometown and, and finding it changed it's actually a deeper experience Another theme, I'll say much less about this, is just marriage. Again, and here we have a broken marriage, a marriage that really has no hope. And not much more to say about it. Dick's done this a lot, and here's just another example of it. And then I think a third thing I want to talk about here is childhood creativity. Why does Dick have the, the people who sort of see above everything and understand things and understand the rules of this world and are able to manipulate it and, and battle on this kind of little on this playing field you know it's the children it's peter and mary and we don't really know what their game is yet and what's happening but there's something special about children here and you know the children are creative and i i reminded a bit of john's world where, where you have the same kind of idea in john's world it's used with time travel but a character is able to see 
the other possible reality. And then events take place that change something in the past, and then that reality does come true. And so the, the creative imagination of childhood is something we should think about as we read Dick's work. Does he follow through on this? Does he give up on it? Uh, there are many very powerful child characters in his in his work, though, that have the power to transform reality. And I, I you know, if you know, if we're kind of on the side of children here, I, I was just looking at an article about Lord of the Flies, and it was um, it was posted on Facebook on a group I follow on youth rights. And the point of the article, I didn't read the whole thing. I just kind of skimmed a little bit of it. But the point seemed to be that maybe we're reading Lord of the Flies wrong. And so, so many people read Lord of the Flies as this, as, with this idea that we can't trust children, right? That if we give children, you know, an island, they're just going to kill each other and go and become tribal and violent and have weird religions and weird ideas. And this author was trying to say that there's something maybe a little bit more creative in what the children did on that island that they actually did create a government and a society and they were you know special circumstances bad things happen but that that certainly happens to our world too i mean you know virtually every war has been started by i guess every war has been started by adults right grown-ups with mostly with good education and lots of training and and sophistication so it wouldn't hurt to maybe give the kids a try at least give them, some of them, at least the right to vote. Well, anyways, that, that's going to do it for part two of the Cosmic Puppets. I'll be back in part three where we will discuss Ted's efforts at urban restoration. And then we'll learn the true forces that work in Millgate will finally be revealed. Thank you so much for listening. That leaving dies, that leaving dies.